Welcome once again to our study in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We're glad you're here and we're looking at the last two verses of chapter 1 and starting the first couple of verses of chapter 2 tonight, Lord willing. So thank you for joining with us and we want to begin with prayer. Father, thank you again for the privilege of serving you, for surely you have done more than we could ever imagine or even hope or think in drawing us close to yourself, forgiving us of our sins, and making us children of your family. Father, we are grateful for the great price you paid that we should be yours. Yeshua, we bless you and thank you. We can never thank you enough, but throughout all eternity we will be praising you and thanking you for all of your goodness to us. And we bless you for your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, that, Lord, you cause us to grow in understanding as well as in desire to please you in all things that we do. So, Father, we ask that you would use our time together as we study these inspired words. We know that they are your word and that you have retained them and guarded them and given them to us so that we might walk in the footsteps of our Messiah, Yeshua. So, Lord, we bless you and thank you for this privilege of study, of being together, and we ask that your word would absolutely dwell amongst us all richly, and that together we might honor your name in your greatness and in all that you have done for us. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay, well, uh, I decided to read from the Net Bible. The Net Bible is not my favorite, uh, but I will say this about the Net Bible. The notes are very keen and give you some good insights at times to various options for the translation, so I appreciate that. I think sometimes the Net Bible takes uh, a few liberties that I wish they hadn't, so I don't recommend it as one of your primary study Bibles, although I know there are some that use it and maybe uh, use it profitably. But I would suggest at least if you're, if you're interested in purchasing a net Bible, uh, New English Translation, I believe is what it uh, stood for, or is it, no, Internet, I can't remember, but at any rate. Um, yeah, it's, it's nice to have, uh, to look at and kind of compare, and it does come up with some good ideas. And I like particularly the way that it translated, um, the, uh, beginning of uh, chapter 2. So, and by the way, I need to uh, I need to do that when we get to chapter 2, because I only have chapter 1 up here now. But we're going to read all of chapter 1, and then we'll, we'll read all of chapter 2 as well, since we're kind of uh, jumping from the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2 tonight. All right? From Paul and Timothy, slaves of Messiah Yeshua, to all the saints in Messiah Yeshua, who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah. I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy in my every prayer for all of you because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Messiah Yeshua. For it is right for me to think this about all of you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, all of you became partners in God's grace together with me. For God is my witness that I long for all of you with the affection of Messiah Yeshua. And I pray this, 
that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight, so that you can decide what is best, and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Messiah, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Yeshua Messiah to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. The whole imperial guard and everyone else knows that I am in prison for the sake of Messiah, and most of the brothers and sisters, having confidence in the Lord because of my imprisonment, now more than ever dare to speak the word fearlessly. Some, to be sure, are preaching Messiah from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so from love because they know that I am placed here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Messiah from selfish ambition, not sincerely, but because they think they can cause trouble for me in my imprisonment. What is the result? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Messiah is being proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Yeshua Messiah. My confident hope is that I will in no way be ashamed, but that with complete boldness, even now as always, Messiah will be exalted in my body whether I live or die. For to me, living is Messiah, and dying is gain. Now if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean productive work for me, yet I don't know which I prefer. I feel torn between the two, because I have a desire to depart and be with Messiah, which is better by far, but it is more vital for your sake that I remain in the body. And since I am sure of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for the sake of your progress and joy in the faith, so that what you can be proud of may increase because of me in Messiah Yeshua when I come back to you. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah, so that whether I come and see you, or whether I remain absent, I should hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, by contending side by side for the faith of the gospel, and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Messiah, but also to suffer for him, and since you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face, and now hear that I am facing. And now chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Messiah, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind, by having the same love, being united in spirit and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Messiah Yeshua had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Yeshua every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and in under the earth, and every tongue confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort, for the sake of his good pleasure, is God. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without blemish, that you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights in the world, by holding on to the word of life, so that on the day of Messiah I will have a reason to boast that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice together with all of you. And in the same way you also should be glad and rejoice together with me. Now I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be encouraged by hearing news about you. For there is no one here like him who will readily demonstrate his deep concern for you. Others are busy with their own concerns, not those of Yeshua Messiah. But you know his qualifications, that like a son working with his father, he served with me in advancing the gospel. So I hope to send him as soon as I know more about my situation though I am confident in the Lord that I too will be coming to see you soon. But for now, I have considered it necessary to send Epaphroditus to you, for he is my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to me in my need. Indeed, he greatly missed all of you and was distressed because you heard that he had been ill. In fact, he became so ill that he nearly died. But God showed mercy to him, and not to him only, but also to me, so that I would not have grief on top of grief. Therefore I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you can rejoice, and I can be free from anxiety. So welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, since it is because of the work of Messiah that he almost died. He risked his life so that he could make up for your inability to serve me. Well, these are amazing uh, words. Uh, and when you read them all together like that, just to try to picture the whole situation of Paul imprisoned and awaiting the uh, adjudication of the courts as to whether he would live or die. For Rome was uh, certainly extending capital punishment to those who uh, did anything that was contrary to uh, the Roman government or contrary to helping um, make the Roman government seem wonderful. So you didn't speak against the government in that day. If you did, you uh, could face a capital punishment. Of course, Paul did not do that, but he was accused of doing it by those who wanted him out of the way. So he was struggling with both the lies that had been told about him as well as the power of the a Roman government, and yet, as we well know, he knew that the power of God was far uh, greater than any earthly power, and he entrusted himself, of course, to the Lord. So, let's look at these final two verses of chapter 1, uh, verses 29 through 30. For to you it has been granted for Messiah's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here 
to be in me. Paul continues to unfold the truths he has already emphasized in the previous context, namely, that his current imprisonment has been used of the Lord not only to evangelize the entire Praetorian Guard, but also to proclaim the good news of Yeshua's saving work to other prisoners as well. If you remember, as we worked through that in the first chapter, and as we just read it, that Paul was very much evangelizing as he was in prison. And God was using what he had done to open the eyes of some, to give the gospel to not only those who guarded him, but also to other prisoners. In addition, that many other believers have been strengthened in their faith and resolved to stand firm for the Lord as they witnessed Paul's testimony of remaining strong in the faith, as we see in verse 14. Likewise, in verse 28, he emphasizes that when those who are the opponents of believers witness the strength of their faith and their resolve and ability to remain committed to Yeshua, in spite of what the uh, uh, government or those against them might do, it proves to them, it proves to the unbelievers that God is faithful and that apart from faith in Him, they are bound for destruction. In other words, if these people who name the name of Yeshua could stand so resilient and so strong in the face of very dire persecutions, certainly they must have had some power their opponents must have thought. And we know what that power is. It's the very work of God establishing us as we submit ourselves to Him. He gives us the strength to do what He has designed and called us to do. Now Paul reminds the believers in Philippi and us as well that our eternal salvation is not something which we earned by our good works but is entirely a gift of God's grace. And I'll just, uh, I'll just say this. Those who take the view that it's, that the person who becomes a believer establishes the faith themselves. In other words, they make the decision to believe and they, and they, uh, strengthen themselves within to believe what they otherwise hadn't believed. Well, that is not what Paul is going to teach us here. He's going to teach us here, as he does in other places, and as the scriptures confirm in other places outside of Paul, that even the faith to believe is given to us by God. Look at the next phrase, for to you it has been granted. Paul's words are clear that the ability to believe in him, to believe in Yeshua, and also to suffer for his sake, are the result of God's grace. For the Greek word translated granted is exoristhai, the aorist form of the verb karizomai, meaning to give freely as a favor, to give graciously. And this verb is connected with or cognate to the noun charis, which means grace. And when used to denote the grace of God, emphasizes the unmerited favor and love he grants to those he draws to himself for eternal salvation. No one, no one manufactures saving faith in God on his own. Our faith that we have laid hold of God's promise in Yeshua is not something that we did and manufactured. Granted, we exercise that faith, but the faith itself, the ability to agree with what God has said, was given to us or granted to us as a gift of God's grace.
Well, what is grace? What is charis? Well, the Greek word, like our English word grace, can have the sense of graciousness or kindness when used in biblical contexts which speak of God's grace in the saving of sinners. The word is best defined succinctly as unmerited favor. That which is earned or achieved by one's own works cannot be considered as having received it by grace. For something that is earned is owed and something that is achieved is likewise received as obligatory. I mean, think about it for a minute. If you're working in a daily work job and you're getting paid by your employer, the employer doesn't come to you and say at the end of the week or at the payday whenever it is, um, you know, I've decided to do a favor for you and, and pay you your wages. No. You have given the employer your work and he has promised to pay you for your work. That's not grace. Something that is earned is owed. In other words, the employer owes you that because he has promised to pay you in exchange for your work. And something that is achieved is likewise received as obligatory. But grace cannot be earned or awarded for by definition, grace is that which is freely given. It is a gift, as Paul makes clear in our text. It says that he has granted us the ability to believe. For to you it has been granted for Messiah's sake. It isn't something that we earned. It isn't something that we deserved. He speaks directly to this in his epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is not <laughs> yourself? Well, the important question which must be asked when seeking to understand Paul's point in Ephesians 2.8 is this. To what does the word that refer in the phrase, and that not of yourselves? In Greek, a demonstrative, such as the word in English, that, hutos uh, in the Greek, must agree in number, that is, whether it's singular or plural, and gender, whether it's masculine, feminine, or neuter, with the word it modifies. In other words, since in Greek, word order doesn't necessarily draw the meaning of the, of the text, it can add to it. But the way you know which words connect with what other words is because they match in terms of gender, in terms of number. Okay? So, as I say, in Greek, the word that, which is called a demonstrative, must agree in number and gender with the word it modifies. Okay? So, when we ask, what is he saying, what is he talking about when he says, and that not of yourselves? If we look back in the verse, in Ephesians 2.8, however, both of the nouns, grace and faith, are feminine nouns, but the word that is in the neuter gender. So wait a minute. It, is it referencing to grace or is it referencing to faith? What is it that is not of ourselves? The best explanation of Paul's words here is that the neuter demonstrative word that can be used to refer back to an entire clause or to the previous context in general and you can look at any good uh, Greek grammar and it will explain that to you. When you have numbers of things listed and then the word that refers to everything that's been listed, 
it's put in the neuter, even if the words that it relates to are not in the neuter, but in some other gender. Further, in the English translation of It is the Gift of God, the English words It is are not actually written in the Greek, but, as often, are expected to be supplied as that which is just expected, or an ellipsis. If we were to translate the entire verse woodenly, it would be, For by the grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of you, the gift of God. Thus, the correct understanding of the grammar is this. Paul is stating that the cause of our salvation is the grace of God, and that we receive his salvation by faith. And neither his grace nor our faith is something which begins with ourselves. Both his grace, as well as the faith to receive his gracious offer of salvation, are gifts which he gives. Isn't that an amazing reality? God is the one who initiates, and God is the one who sees to it that what he initiates always comes to fruition as he plans. And that is precisely what Paul is emphasizing in his letter to the Philippians. Our coming to faith in Yeshua, our having him as our Redeemer, our Savior, our Lord and King, all of this is a gift of his grace and nothing we earned or deserved. Now when you lay hold of that truth, when this comes to really be an a a ground-level foundation of who we are in the Messiah Yeshua, what does it engender? It causes us to say, I want to serve him more. I want to please him more. I had nothing to give him until he saved me. And he did that at great cost. So he goes on to say, for Messiah's sake. The Greek Christu, which is how it's translated, for or because of or on behalf of Messiah, has engendered numerous interpretations within this context. But it seems clear, as far as I'm concerned, that the emphasis Paul expects us to see is that it is entirely by the work of Yeshua in his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his current intercession for us, that all who are divinely called to be his are granted initial faith resulting in salvation, but also are given the ability to persevere in that faith until the end. Don't get me wrong. I'm not in any way saying that we're somehow puppets. No, once we are brought to life in Yeshua, we are partners together with what He intends to accomplish. Are we able to grieve the Spirit? Unfortunately, yes. Are we able to say yes to the leading of the Spirit? Are we able to yield ourselves to Yeshua and to the work of the Spirit for the glory of God? Yes, we are. And this is why we must constantly put to death the deeds of the flesh and live unto righteousness. God has given us the ability to do that. We didn't have it before. There was nothing that we could do that pleased Him because all of our deeds were like filthy rags. Now, we have been born afresh, born anew, brought into the family of God, and we have the ability, by the work of the Spirit, to please Him by obeying Him and growing in our appreciation of Him 
and giving him the glory he deserves in all aspects of our life. Thus, all that we have and all that we are as we grow to become more and more like our Savior is the result of Yeshua's saving work brought to us by the work of the Spirit and all for the glory and praise of God. So it has been granted not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Whoa, wait a minute. So far we've been talking about all of the greatness that God has given to us. And all of a sudden now, Paul brings us to this idea of suffering for His sake. Well, even as faith is a gift of God, so is the strength and ability to persevere in the faith. Granted, such perseverance in the faith is a cooperative work, as I've emphasized, between the renewed child of God and the work of the Spirit as the believer submits to the Lord, gains strength from Him, and grows in spiritual ability to glorify Him in all aspects of one's life. But what Paul is not teaching us here is that we should expect suffering and even look for it, thinking that the more we suffer, the more we are becoming like our Messiah. There have been offshoots of Christianity which have actually taught that the more you suffer, the more holy you are. There are those that we have seen, uh, I have seen them at least, uh, uh, beating themselves, uh, even beating themselves to the point where it brings blood and thinking that they that when they do this, they're becoming more acceptable to God. No, that's not what Paul is teaching here. We're not to look for suffering. We're to expect it, however, because in this world there are those who hate the God that has saved us and want nothing to do with those who continue to give Him glory and, and continue to uh, make known His goodness. No, we're not supposed to just look for suffering as though somehow the more we suffer, the more holy we are. No nor even that when believers do not suffer, their genuine faith is suspect. No. It surely is true that the fallen world in which we live may bring sufferings, as Paul teaches us in Romans 8, 18-19. We live in a world that is contrary to God in many ways. So, we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer. Death is part of the fallen world. Sickness. All right? It doesn't mean that we're being punished. Now, God can get our attention by bringing us into suffering, but even those, all of us, who live lives of holiness before the Lord, we should recognize the fact that there may come to us times of suffering. Even as Paul wrote in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. There are certain aspects of our fallen world which all of us will participate in because it is fallen. When we, uh, when we injure ourselves or when we are injured and we suffer the pain, when we uh, contract sickness. But the question that we have here as we read Paul how is it that God has not only granted that we should believe in Him, but also granted that we should suffer for Him, if need be? 
What Paul is teaching us here in Philippians, however, is that in this world we may face suffering directly related to our evident faith in Yeshua, and that if and when we do, we have the promise that the Lord will enable us to remain faithful and to persevere through the suffering as victorious in His grace and strength. You see, He has promised us that even when we suffer, it will be for His glory. So He has granted that to us. We don't suffer just because there's no meaning in it. Even our suffering can be used to give glory to God. Such ability to persevere under suffering will likewise be an evident testimony to others of the strength and grace He gives, even as the Lord has sustained Paul in his current situation of suffering. And that's Paul's point, is that even when we suffer, God can be glorified. When we yield ourselves to Him and trust in Him for the outcome. He goes on to say, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. It is interesting to contemplate the strong possibility that Paul has in mind athletic contests, since he uses the Greek word agon. This term originally indicated a place or an arena of an athletic contest, then the contest itself, and later any kind of struggle or conflict. The same arenas were likewise used for the torture of martyrs. So, people may have come to the, uh, uh, these arenas to watch a, a Greek athletic contest, but they would have also come to watch people being murdered. That's what I mean by the arenas were likewise used for the torture of martyrs. We see this use of agon, same word, described in 4th Maccabees, describing the suffering, the word agon, of Jewish martyrs under the Syrian tyrant Antiochus, as likened to the contest, the agon, of athletes. Truly divine, and I give you a quote now from 4th Maccabees, truly divine was the contest, the agon, in which they were engaged. On that day, virtue was the umpire, and the test to which they were put was a test of endurance. The prize for victory was incorruption in the long-lasting life. The first to enter the contest was Eleazar, but the mother of the seven sons competed also, and the brothers as well took, took part. The tyrant was the adversary, and the world and the life of men were the spectators. Piety won the victory and crowned her own contestants. In other words, just as a marked uh, reference from 4th Maccabees, about the putting to death of, of Jewish people under the tyrant Antiochus. And is it possible that Paul has this picture in mind, not of Fourth Maccabees, but this picture of uh, the arena, the uh, place where athletes competed, was also used uh, of putting to death people for their own faith and so forth. Thus, Paul encourages the believers in Philippi not to see his suffering in prison as something to bring them fear or causing them to be unsettled in their faith. Just the opposite. For as we receive Paul's own testimony of God's sustaining power, even in the very difficult circumstances he was enduring, they should be strengthened to know that if they likewise were to suffer for their faith in Yeshua, they, like Paul, would be sustained by God's power. 
And now we can apply that to each of our lives. It's easy, isn't it, to fear the future. And God tells us, don't do that. God is in control. Whatever He brings us into, He will give us the means to sustain our faith in praise and glory of Him. So, even as Paul says that he was being fully maintained by God in his dire circumstances, he's telling these believers in Philippi, as such, they would likewise be granted the opportunity to give God glory, for only by His grace and power could they endure even as Paul endured, presenting them as a sure demonstration of God's faithfulness. So the lesson we learn from these final verses of our chapter is this. We who are in Messiah Yeshua need never fear the future. For even when the days seem to be more and more darkened against the light of God's saving grace and power, we know for certain that He will sustain us by His grace and omnipotence, and nothing that is set against us will have success. As we read, and here again I, I like the net translation of this verse, 1 Corinthians 10.13, No trial has overtaken you that is not faced by others, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond what you are able to bear, but with the trial will also provide a way out, out so that you may be able to endure it. You see, God never tempts us to, God tempts no one to sin. But He does at times bring circumstances into our lives that will try our faith, that is, make it stronger. Because He will always provide what is necessary as we rely upon Him. So there's no need for us to fear the future. There's no need for us to wonder, what will I do? Will I be strong enough? So forth and so on. No, there's no trial that has overtaken you, but that He will help us. He will provide a way out so that we will be able to endure it. That's the promise of the Scriptures. The Greek words translated by the Net Bible as trial or tried may also carry the sense of temptation or to tempt as most of the English Bibles translate them. Surely the Greek perismos and perazo can be understood as describing temptation as well as testing, and this is because the two concepts are surely uh, similar. For very often a person that comes under strong temptation is having their faith tested as to whether it is genuine. But God, the scriptures are clear, God does not tempt anyone. God is not trying to get people to sin. So I think it's very clear that we should understand perismos and uh, periazo here in the text to mean trial. My point is this. Even as Paul showed himself to bear up under severe testing, so he proved to his readers the genuine nature of his faith in Yeshua. And even as he was an example to the Philippian believers, as well as believers in other regions who heard of his imprisonment, so we, by the strength God gives, will be enabled to face whatever trials come upon us, knowing that God will never abandon those who are his, but will give them strength to persevere as they trust in Him. All right, well, we'll just take a bit of uh, entrance into chapter 2. 
And uh, it does carry on. You know, of course, that in the original writings there weren't necessarily divisions between chapters. There were divisions sometimes within the columns of the text, but uh, the uh, making chapters is, is a modern convention. So, in chapter 2 now, Paul now goes on in his letter to encourage and exhort the Philippian community to strive for unity and not to be divided against each other, for disunity is often fostered in times of testing. Isn't that true? When, when the going gets tough, it's very often that you begin to see within a community divisions happening. One writer put it this way, in these verses Paul describes attitudes and behavior, selfish ambition, vain conceit, regarding oneself as better than the others, looking out for one's personal interests that foment tension and strife in the community. Ultimately, as always, Paul points his readers and us to a different standard, the life of Yeshua himself. As we seek more and more to have the mind of our Messiah Yeshua we will be enabled to be unified under his guidance and example and to be one in the Spirit, to have true, genuine unity. So the first two verses, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Messiah, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, why does he say if there is any encouragement? Oftentimes in the Greek the word if can mean since, and I take it kind of to mean that here. When Paul begins with if, he's not suggesting that the following things he lists might not exist. Rather, the sense is that surely the believers to whom he writes have experienced encouragement in in the Messiah, expression of true love and caring for one another the fellowship of the Spirit, and life-to-life caring for each other. And thus they both know and are able to preserve their unity. To do so, however, they must commit themselves to living as God intends them to live, submitting to His ways, seeking to glorify Him by living out their faith through the strength He gives. So when He says, if there is any encouragement, if there is any consolation, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, and he might just as well have said, and there most certainly is, well, if that's the case, then why do we have difficulty maintaining unity within our uh, believing community? That's his point. If these things are true, then most certainly We know that unity is possible, but what does it require? It requires humility. It requires giving ourselves to live out the very things that Paul's listing here. The opening, therefore, clearly links back to the previous context in Paul's exhortation to live out the grace and salvation that God has granted his people, having called us into his family and united us together in Yeshua. The gift of faith he has given us is the very means by which we are enabled to take hold of his strength, wisdom, and mercy in order to live faithfully unto him no matter what situations may come our way. And this includes striving for unity and not giving in to the impulses of the flesh. What is one of the primary impulses of the sinful flesh? It's selfishness. 
We don't like to admit that. Oh, I don't like the way they're doing the songs. I don't like the way they're doing this. I don't like how this is happening. I'm going to go find someplace else. It's very easy to find excuses for disunity. And, in some very real ways, it's against our sinful nature to serve one another and to hold each other as more important than ourselves. I think many times we don't realize how significant every person is within a given community of faith. You might think, oh, I don't have much to give. Well, God has given you much to give others. You may have the ability to help someone that others wouldn't have. You may connect with a person that others are having difficulty connecting with. God put everyone in the body of the Messiah with the purpose of serving Him and serving one another. So, that must be our perspective to live faithfully unto Him no matter what situations may come our way. And this includes striving for unity and not giving into the impulses of the flesh. Indeed, to bear each other's burdens is the very command of Yeshua. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Messiah. Well, we talk a lot about Torah, and rightly so. The Scriptures talk a lot about Torah. And what is Torah? It's God's teaching. What does it mean to fulfill the Torah of Messiah? It means to obey Him, to give one's life to Him, to seek to serve Him by serving each other, and to do so for His glory. So Paul begins by emphasizing the importance of encouragement in Messiah. The word encouragement, paraklesis, is one of those terms which is somewhat difficult to know precisely its intended meaning in any given context. This is because the word can carry a number of different nuances. It can express encouragement or exhortation or even to appeal to someone or to request. It can mean to comfort or to give consolation. I think it seems best in this context to understand the word encouragement to mean comfort, or that which dispels fear and dismay. This is because the emphasis is upon encouragement in Messiah. A parallel uh, text might be 2 Corinthians 1.5, For just as the sufferings of Messiah are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through the Messiah. So, in our context here in the Philippians, Paul is bringing together suffering for the Messiah and helping one another, comforting one another. This means to be strengthened, encouraged, comforted, even in times of trial and suffering, knowing that what the Lord has promised He will always do. Did He not say that wherever there is trial, that He would give us the means to persevere through it? And in so doing, do we not give Him the glory then? when people see that we're able to bear up under difficulties, they may wonder, how is it? How are you doing that? And the answer is through the strength that God gives me, being in Messiah and having the Ruach HaKodesh dwelling within us. So there is no need to be overcome with fear regarding the future. He will enable all who are His to persevere and give them the strength to do so as they rely upon Him. Surely, he has promised never to leave or forsake those 
who are his. Hebrews 13.5 Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And of course we read in Matthew 18.20 For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Well, this isn't the Great Commission, but it's close to it, where we have at the end of, of Matthew, And look, I am with you always, even to the end of time. So, do we rely upon the very presence of the Lord as we serve Him? Is that which what it gives us the encouragement, the joy, the consolation, even in times of difficulties and suffering? He says, if there is any consolation of love. Since Paul begins with encouragement in Messiah, it seems best to understand the phrase consolation of love to be referring to God's love for all who are His, as demonstrated by the love of Yeshua in giving Himself for all those whom the Father has given to Him. Surely, the death of the Messiah, His life, His resurrection, His ascension to the Father, all of this are historical realities which prove to us God's love. Surely there is no greater expression of God's love than in the giving of His own Son, Yeshua, to save sinners and to bring them into the family of God for eternity. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. We who belong to Him because of His love in giving His life for us ought likewise to love each other, for in doing so we demonstrate our love for Him. As John writes in his first epistle, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What does that mean? Well, that's the whole crux of unity. We're willing and able to forgive each other. We're willing and able to recognize our differences and to help each other seek the unity that we have by agreeing with what God has said and what God is leading us to do even as individuals as well as communities. And then he goes on to say, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit. The word fellowship, koinonia, is often understood to mean fellowship as the NASB translates it here, meaning to be together, to talk together, etc. When you think of having fellowship, you think of maybe eating together, talking together, uh, praying together, whatever. But, The primary aspect of the word is that of sharing in something or participating in something, usually participating and sharing with someone else. Thus, the fellowship that Paul is describing here undoubtedly involves sharing together of the essential aspects of life in Messiah. It incorporates the work of the Spirit, not only gifting every member of the community to serve the Lord and each other, but also to recognize the essential aspects of encouraging each other and coming to the aid of each other and striving for unity with each other. This means when we're in a community and we see something and someone doing something that ah, we're not, we don't like, that we don't think that's right, what do we do? Do we go talk to other people? What do you think about you know, what such and such did and what he's saying there? What do you think about that? I don't, I don't know if I like that or not. And we talk to each other. No. We should have a heart of compassion. We should pray for them. 
we should encourage them. Maybe at some point we would have the opportunity to share with them what we think might be better, but we do that out of love. The last thing we would want to do would be to engage in some kind of Lashon Hara, some kind of gossip that tears other people down. Or saying, well, if that keeps up, I'm out of here. Oh, it's all about me, is it? Do we really understand what it means to be members together in the body of the Messiah and to encourage and to help one another gain more and more likeness to our Savior Yeshua? So I realize we have uh, ended in the middle of a verse here, but uh, that's where we're going to end for tonight. And that's where we'll pick up next week. And so I think that maybe that will uh, prompt some of you to go back and read it and figure out what it means as far as you're concerned so that when we study together next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to put all of the pieces of this verse together and be able to see how it works in our own lives. So thank you for coming again tonight. I'm glad to have you with us. And we'll look forward to being together again next week when we continue our study in this epistle of Philippians.